Well, again, we're glad that you're today. I love grace. I don't know if some of you caught it maybe by, uh, by Facebook or social media that some of us, we actually have about 27 people on staff at Grace Community Church. A lot of those are part-time, but we took 11 of the full-time guys and we went down to Dallas and uh, as we were down there, we went to a, a conference. We do something like that usually about once a year, a time where we can learn together and uh, stretch ourselves a little bit, but also a chance for team building and so we can kind of grow in our relationships with each other and hopefully have a good time while we're doing it. Did anybody catch that we were doing that? Anybody knew that? Yeah, so yeah, some of you about... Some of you are a little more plugged in. I always cringe at what pictures may be going out on Facebook because I never know, you know, and, and I'm one of those people that take bad pictures, you know how that is, which I feel like don't really look at me, but like me, you know, you ever have a picture, you feel that doesn't really look, but actually that's exactly how I look, you know, it's a photo, you know, so it's just, oh well. But anyway, I digress. But uh, so we did that, it was a great time, and um, really talking about the church, that's what our has everything to do with what we're talking about with our series, Viral. It's really about the, the spread of the church. Uh, there's a time when uh, Christianity started out small in Jerusalem and then started spreading person by person all around the world. And so we're going through Acts on this to see how the, how the early church was, what they did, how God used them, how, how Christianity went viral, and apply those lessons to us today. We've covered Acts 1, Acts 2, now we're going into Acts 3, and I would like to set a bit of a context within Acts for you. Remember, this all hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He rose again, we celebrated that on Easter, and then after that, uh, his resurrection, he appeared to people, groups of people, the disciples and others, over a period of 40 days. As that came to a close, he, he ascended up into heaven, but first he had given the disciples a charge, basically, first of all, to wait for the coming Holy Spirit, and then with the Spirit's power that they would be witnesses of Jesus and his resurrection to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the world. And so they did. They, they waited. In the, in the meantime, they picked another disciple, Matthias, they did that by lot. Justice or Matthias came up, Matthias, to replace Judas, so they'd be back to 12. And then, as they're waiting in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit shows up. It's on Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover, so it's about a week after the ascension of Jesus. They're in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit shows up in what looks like tongues of fire that rests on each disciple as they're meeting together. They spill forth from that room, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as they do that, they speak. And people who, who are Jewish people gathered from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost, they all hear the disciples speaking in their own language. So all of a sudden the disciples are speaking in all these foreign languages that people can know and understand. And they know something's up because these people from foreign countries realize that most of the disciples are Galileans and they don't know their native tongue, but yet they're speaking not only in their language, but in their dialect with their, the, the right accents and everything. And they see that something is amazing. They see it's a miracle. A crowd starts gathering. People are stirred up. Some people mock it. Some people are just amazed. And then Peter uses that crowd that's gathered to preach the first sermon. And he basically preaches Jesus. 
He ties the ministry of the Messiah back to the Old Testament. He reminds the people that they're really responsible that they put Jesus to death. And they repented. And because of that, a bunch of people became believers. Once they became believers, they signed up for baptism. And they followed Christ that way. And there were 3,000 people in the church. And then Acts, at the end of chapter 2, describes the unity that this body of believers, these 3,000 people had. They met together. They were with one mind, Paul said, or Luke says in, in Acts. They were together. They were doing church together. They were fellowshipping. They were doing life together and meeting together. And then what else we know is that they, didn't, um, they did not neglect going to the temple even though they realized Christ was a permanent sacrifice, they still went to the temple in order to speak with other Jewish people to share the true Messiah with them. And so now when we get into Acts chapter 3, it's one of these times, it's shortly after this time period, and now John and Peter, they go to the temple in the afternoon, and it's a time of prayer. What that is is a time of evening sacrifice, which happened about 3 in the afternoon, the ninth hour, and that sacrifice was happening twice a day, the continual sacrifices before God as a system that the Jewish people had to temporarily cover their guilt. And even though Peter and John knew the perfect sacrifice had come and this system was over, they still came in order to impact the people there. And that brings us right up to Acts chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So Peter and John, they head to the temple. Um, and we see this story unfold and as we look at Acts chapter 3 and we see what the early church was involved in, I really want us to see three truths, what they were doing, and three things that apply to us today, and that is this. First, the disciples, the early church, the Christians, they gave what they could, they told what they knew, and they trusted God with the result. They gave what they could, they told what they knew, they trusted God. So here we have an example where as they go into the temple, Peter and John are sitting there. Peter and John are heading to the temple. This guy's sitting there, and then he's there. He's never been able to walk. 
Somebody carries him and places him by the gate of the temple so he could ask God's people, the Jewish people, for money. He's begging for money. And he's really asking for what he thinks is his greatest need when he sees John and Peter walk by. And that is, he thinks his greatest need is money, not realizing that, that Peter and John are about to give him something that greater than his expectations. And that is, they're going to give him the ability, he's going to be healed, the ability, the capacity to work and earn his own living and be a, a member of society in a way that he'd never been able to do before. And that's what happens. Peter and John pass by. They say, well, I don't have any money on me. I don't know if that was by design or not, but here's what I do have. And, the, and probably he's, he's got his hand out. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk him. And Peter probably just grabs that hand and pulls him up. And the guy is healed. And as the church is meeting... We noticed already at the end of chapter 2, they're already meeting each other's needs in the church. And now we have this first example. It's the first miracle in the church. And what's although it's out at the temple, uh, among God's people, God's new people, the followers of Christ, first miracle that happens. But it's all in this whole spirit of the disciples of a spirit of generosity. People are giving. They're they're. They're generous, they're reaching out, they're giving to people, first of all, within their community, but then, as Peter and John saying, they're targeting people outside the community in order to help them. And, and when we think about that, we're, we're reminded of the fact that unlike first century Christians in Jerusalem, we today, we have a lot. And God's calling us to be generous and I think sometimes we, we live in, in such a rich society. Again, if you're sitting here, you're probably in the top 3% of the world's richest people. And, and sometimes we feel that we have nothing to give. But we have a lot to give. We have a lot to spare. And uh, we have a lot to help others with. Um, I told the first service that if I was ever guilty of pastoral malpractice... It's probably in the area of teaching on giving. I don't really do that as much as I should. I don't do it as much as the Bible does, and that's not good. If you're thinking you're a generous person, or even more strongly, if you think you're not greedy, the test of that is a simple test. Do you give money away? Do you give resources away with no expectation of return? And specifically, what the first century church did is they gave resources away in the name of Jesus Christ. Not just sending money to good causes, but sending money to the cause, the church, and making an impact on people around the world. It takes money to do ministry. You know, we all know that, always has. And, and it's God, God has a plan for us to fund money, whether it was the temple in the Old Testament or the church today, he calls his people to be generous. Uh, I talked about how our, our shift in growing with grace. And anytime I talk about something that, like that, I, you know, I'm reminded of the history. You know, every week, usually I do it a lot on Fridays, I come in here maybe multiple times on Friday 
Usually the auditorium is dark. I think I've mentioned this before. You know, I'll come in here, it's dark, and I'll pray. And usually when I'm done praying, I'm heading out, and by then I can see better. I'm not running into as many things because I can see. And, uh, and I'm heading out, and I, and I always tell God this, or most of the time I'm, I'm saying, God, it's not lost on me that this is a miracle, that what you've done here at Grace in this community, this place, uh, our people, you, it's amazing what you've done. I'll praise him on the way out. For example, here, you know, for those of you who were with us back in the day, you know, back in the late 90s, we were planning to, to build a church. There's only 600 of us then. And people gave self-sacrificially. We were in two services in a smaller building to build this. And so if you've come since then, you're sitting in a seat that somebody else gave money to, to make available for you to come and be able to sit in. And then after this, you know, we, we extended our building that way. And then last year, we just finished an extension of our building that way where we built this whole youth complex, huge, you know, 25,000 square feet or whatever. And as we did that, we see now, and I know a lot of you, a lot more of you were involved in that. And, since, and, and why? To make room for teenagers, room that we did not have before. And since then, 90-something teenagers, may, maybe more than that now, have come to Christ in the last year in that building behind me. Eternities changed. Lives changed forever. And I, I say all that to say, thanks. You know, that, that's the extra gifts. That's what we call growing with grace gifts. But then there's the giving of just making, you know, ministry costs money. Just making ministry happen week after week. Paying the light bills, making it happen. Just all that stuff. Thank you. If you give or you serve at Grace, thank you uh, for being here. Thank you for making that happen. And we see the same thing in the early church. Um, what we're trying to accomplish here at Grace is we don't just want you to attend Grace. We want you to be Grace. We want you to own Grace. We, we want you to, to be our church. We want you to be immersed in, in following God and what we're doing collectively as Grace Community. We, we've talked a lot about and so it, the challenge for us as we grow bigger is we're trying to track everybody and, and make sure we know everybody and what's going on and if anybody has needs, how we can follow up, and we're trying to improve all those ways. So we've been talking about lately how we're improving our database, right? We're switching from one church so, uh, management software to another, you know, Fellowship One to Planning Center Online. And as we do that, we're just trying to make us more efficient. So everybody's been working very hard especially the people that didn't go to Dallas. You know, they've been stuck here trying to make all that happen. So hats off to our secretarial team and, and administrative assistants and all that stuff. And as we were talking about that, we're always trying to capture if you're here or not. It might be news to you. It's a big deal to us to find out whether you've been here or not. And, and so here's how we know. If you fill out a card for us, just one of those cards on the back of the chair rack, but most of you don't do that. But if you fill one of those out, we know you're here. And because most of you don't do that, we have other ways. The other way is if you check in children, we know you're here because we know who you are because we're going to give those children back to you. <laughs> so we, we know you're here. Or 
If you give, if you give in any form that's identifiable, are the people who handle that stuff will make sure they click an attendance for you. Yeah, you've been here, boom, you gave. We're just trying to, to figure all that out. And so we're also looking at designations. Well, okay, so we're trying to follow people and how immersed they are, how involved they are, how included they are at Grace. So we're trying to make that, you know, everybody's welcome, but we're just trying to figure out where everybody's at. And so we started making categories. Well, this person, you know, act, they're active or they're inactive or they're a member or they're not a member yet. And, you know, all these things. And, or they give or they haven't given yet. You know, again, it's just a way to know kind of how much... They're with us. And then, then I kind of started thinking, well, boy, if we had, you know, why, we should make a designation for somebody that does all that stuff. If we have somebody that's attending and they're giving and they're serving, it'd be nice to just be able to see that so we'd have a lot better feeling about, you know, how connected they were to grace. Does that make sense? And, and I, that we were thinking, well, what, what shall we call those people? And I'm, I'm saying a rock star, you know, that's what we should call them. They're the grace rock stars, although, again, we're all just beggars. I mean, I don't mean to imply that you get what I'm saying. We're just looking for the people that, you know, are, are totally immersed, and then we're looking for others that maybe need to take another step. And, but mainly we're looking for people who drop off the grid because we're worried that maybe they have a problem, and we want to be able to follow up on them and see how they're doing and, and make sure there's not a problem that we can help with. But anyway, that's, so that's our challenge is we want to... We want to be a church that's connected. And that's what we see in Jerusalem. They're unified. They're connected. They're generous. Generous to the point that they never pass up brokenness. They stop and they do something about it. As a matter of fact, we see this. You know how I mentioned last Sunday about historians who are not believers, who are a little skeptical? One of the amazing things that they have to deal with is the explosion of Christianity, the explosion of the church. How did that happen? Because there's not a lot of good explanations for what happened there. And so as they try to figure that out, one of the things that they notice is that as the church is exploding, I mean, it's just taken off, you're trying to figure out, well, what caused that? And here's, here's one of the things that did that. In the first, first, second, and third century, we had all these plagues and epidemics in the world. You've read about those, right? You know, bring out your debt, you know, all that stuff. You know, plagues are happening. And uh, as that happens, when a plague would hit a city, what would happen is all the healthy people, boom, they would flee the city because they understood this is a plague, this is going to kill a bunch of people somehow this is contagious, I'm out of here. And all these healthy people would flee the cities during a plague. But at the same time, you know what else was happening in the first, second, and third centuries? Christians were running to the cities to minister to the people who were dying and to help people who were sick. And so this is what secular historians are saying. So the chances, if you survived a plague in the first three centuries uh, in, since Christ, it was probably because a Christian helped you. And then, of course, a lot of people died. A lot of Christians died. But then a lot of Christians, because they were doing this, developed an immunity, and all of a sudden they could go to more cities and help even more people because they wouldn't get it after that. And, 
And so all these people started realizing that with all these different religions and gods and everything else, it was Christians that came in and give, gave of themselves. And so we actually have historical evidence written by non-Christians, pagan people, talking about the spread of Christianity and attributing it to the fact that when there was brokenness, Christians rushed in. When everybody else was leaving, Christians came. When the pagans were trying to get out of there, Christians came in to help people. And so we have these pagan people writing letters back and forth that we have today saying, well, what they're doing is they're not only helping their own people, they're not only being generous with them and taking care of them, they're helping our people, our pagan people, our pagan co-religionists. They're helping them. And then if they survive, these people are so appreciative, they realize, why would you stay here? Why would you do this? They hear the message of Jesus and they become followers of Christ. So you have ancient pagan writers talking about the spread of Christianity and it was their love and compassion for each other and the world and the message that they preached while they were doing that because they were helping people in the name of Jesus Christ. And Christianity started spreading. And when plagues popped up, it spread even faster. It went viral. It spread all through the world. When the world was at its worst, Christianity was at its best. And even now, when the world is the darkest, is at its darkness, is when Christianity shines the brightest. And when we look at, around at the, the plagues we see, the epidemics, the drug epidemics and everything that's happening, the best answers for those issues are going to come from the church. And when we look at children at risk and what's happening, the best answers will end up coming from the church. And that's the way God designed it to be. Why? Because Christians, we, we give what we can we give what we can spare. We, we give. We make it a priority to not consume everything that we have, that we give things away from us to benefit others. When Christians saw brokenness, instead of running away, they ran too. And that's what we saw right here at the beginning of Acts chapter 3 in the first miracle. Now what happens is the people can be impressed by a miracle or some event or something that seems supernaturally, but just because the people are impressed doesn't mean that they turn to Christ. They can be impressed without responding to what it signifies, which is the power and grace of God. They can be impressed without aligning themselves with God. So Peter takes the opportunity again. Remember, they're in the temple. They healed this guy. They go on in. Probably by now, the evening sacrifice has already happened. But during that time, word has spread. He's on the side of the temple. And as they're there, and this guy who doesn't want to let John and Peter out of his sight because they healed him, and so he's sticking to them like glue, and more and more people are recognizing this guy. Hey, this guy, which we later find out, he had, been, he had not been able to walk for, since birth, and he's over 40 years old. So people recognize this guy. This is the guy that sat at the gate that we've been seeing for decades. And now he's standing there, leaping around, praising God with Peter and John. And so as the crowd develops, Peter does what we'd expect Peter to do. 
And he breaks out another sermon. It starts this way. We left off in verse 10. Here's verse 11. So talking about the beggar guy hanging with Peter and John, it says, While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses." And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has been given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter uses the crowd that's gathered in amazement at the man to say, Why are you acting like we're anything special? He deflects all their wonder to God and says, this is a God thing. This is all about Jesus, whom you crucified. And remember, when when Pilate was thinking he could find no fault in Jesus and he came to the crowds, he came to the Jewish people and says, who can I release to you, Jesus or this other murderer guy? And you picked the murderer and then shouted to crucify Jesus. And he's reminding him of all of that. And they all feel that responsibility, like we were talking about last week, which is also our responsibility that Jesus was crucified. And then the rest of his sermon basically goes back to the Old Testament building the case that even though they didn't emphasize it, even though they didn't talk about it and teach about it much, the, old, the prophets, the Old Testament, had said that the Messiah would come and suffer and die. And that's exactly who Jesus is. What's happening here? The Christians in the early church, they gave what they could. And they told people what they know. And it's the same for us. We're called by God to open our mouths and tell people what we know. Tell people what Jesus has done for us. Tell people how God has changed our lives. It's our responsibility. And when Jesus gave the mission to the apostles and his followers to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the the remotest part of the world, that trickles down to us. That that is our responsibility And I think we know that intellectually, but a lot of times relationally, we just don't get those gears working. And so let me say it a little stronger. If you have a relationship with somebody that you see repeatedly, maybe every week or even once a month, somebody that you know, and you do not, and so you're kind of casual friends with them because you see this person regularly, and you do not know whether they are going to spend an eternity in heaven or separated from God in hell, 
If you don't know that, you're out of God's will. Because God has given us all this message and the responsibility to share it. So if there are people in your life and you don't know where they stand, that's the most important thing. We need to tell what we know. We're here for a purpose. God has saved us for a reason. And he's commissioned all of us as believers to share Christ. To tell people about him. It's our responsibility. And so often, it's so easy not to do that. And, and I've been thinking lately, just the last few days, why is that? Why, why is that so hard? Why, why is that such a challenge? Maybe it's because we are fearful, or if it's not fear, because what can anybody do to us? It, vulnerability? We're exposing? You know, I don't, here's, here's, I, I told you, maybe I didn't tell you, I can't remember if I told you or not, but we were in Dallas, and, we were, and what Tim always does, because he sets this up for us, is he puts us in a rented house. So rather than stay at a motel, we rent a house, and we all stay at the house, and then we could kind of connect a little bit better. That makes sense? If I put you guys to sleep, are you with me? All right, so we're in the rented house. And so then when we go in there, it's a large house that has a pool. And it's right near the church, and everything's great. And so we all kind of fan out in the house, and we find places to sleep. There's usually a lot of beds, in this case, beds and cots and all this stuff. And Zach and I are in this area of the house, had a nice bed and a cot. Zach got the cot, and we were there, and you know, it, was, it was a cool place to be. And then, right there by that bedroom, they had this amazing um, glass and rock shower with two shower heads. Maybe some of you have that, but I don't, so I was impressed. You know, two shower heads, very cool. There's just one problem. It's a glass shower, and there's no door to the bathroom which I thought was really odd. There was no, not even a place for a door. And then there's a little hallway, and there's like two bedrooms, and there's no doors to either one of those rooms. And as a matter of fact, a straight shot down the hallway in, in this other little room, which had a round bathtub in it, but anyway, right after that room, then there was like a, a, a glass wall, and the, they had curtains, but they were just the curtains that are on the side that you can't pull closed. I don't know if you know what. They wouldn't stretch across if you did, just leave the sides open. You know, so you had this decorative curtain thing, and then it's outside. So from the shower, you can see outside into the yard. It's like, it's, you know, I don't know who does that. But, you know, we didn't have a lot of, you know, showers were at a premium when you have a bunch of guys. And so we're using, you know, I'm using the shower, you know, kind of like, you know, feeling very exposed and vulnerable. You know, I don't know if that's it. Is that the problem that we have? You know, is that why we, we don't want to share Christ? We don't want to be, we don't want to feel vulnerable and exposed? I mean, when it comes to our body, hey, cover up. But when it comes to our Christianity, let it show, let it shine. And, and if you're having issues with that, well, maybe it's because you, you don't understand the third thing. We're not doing the third thing that the early church was doing. What were they doing? 
They gave what they could. They told what they knew. And the third thing is they just trusted God for the outcome. After that, they just let the chips fall. They just let it happen. Back to the sermon. He, 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 I told you, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament. Now let's go to Acts chapter 4. And let's just read the first few verses there. So sermon's over now. We're, we're winding down. And here's what happens. Acts 4.1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, this is a little comical picture here. So they've got this, this formerly lame guy who's with them, and he's leaping for joy, and he want, he's hanging around them, and he's praising God, and that attracts this big crowd that comes around. Then Peter starts preaching, and he's winding down, and then the temple people, they're kind of out of their minds going, well, this is, this is we, we got to stop this. We got to shut this down. So they arrest Peter, and so they're binding Peter and John, and you could almost see it as they're taking him away. Peter's saying something like, and by the way, I just preach." If you want to respond, now would be a good time to do that. And then they haul them off and stick them in jail. The amazing thing is there are thousands of people watching them be hauled away to jail, and they're like, I want some of that. Count me in. I believe. And all of a sudden, the church grows from 3,000 to 5,000 while they're being arrested. Why? Because those believers, those extra 2,000 and the 3,000 before, they understood something. Hey, I believe, let the chips fall. I will follow God. If I'm arrested, so be it. Let the chips fall. I am trusting God for the outcome, and we should be the exact same way. Give what we can. Tell what we know. Trust God for the rest. We're worried about exposing ourselves, being vulnerable. What are we fearful of? Somebody won't like us anymore. The only reason we have relationships is to influence people for the kingdom. So if them knowing you're a Christian is going to end that relationship, so be it. The best thing you can do for them, the best way you can love them and help them is taken off the table. But the thing is, when we least expect it, people respond. And it, by the way, their response, that's not our deal, is it? That's God's deal. We tell. We tell and we trust. It's not our responsibility how people respond. It's our responsibility to be faithful in what God has given us. We give what we can. We tell what we know. We trust God for the rest. That's what God has called each and every one of us to do. Trust God. I started thinking this week, when is the last time that I've asked God to do something 
or if it, would, or if it happened, I would know that that's way beyond me. You know, we, we should constantly be doing this. I do this, but we, we should all do this. It, and it would look like this. Why not be intentional about it? Why not ask God to do something in the next week that involves us doing something, by the way? It's not just us sitting back and see if God's going to do something. It's we jump in, we try to make something happen, but we know we can't do it. We know that if it happens, it's a total God thing. We know that if it happens, it's totally beyond our own giftedness. Do you see what I'm saying? That we would just trust God, that we would dive in and trust God for the result. Trust him for the outcome and know when we saw that result that it wasn't us. That it was all God. We don't do that enough. We don't take him at his word as much as we... When we become believers, our priorities in life are completely rearranged. You know, walk with God. Be a good husband and father and, and impact God's kingdom. I mean, it's really not that hard. Our priorities are rearranged. We are not our own we have been bought with a price. We live for him. And we let the chips fall. We trust God for the outcome no matter what it is. Because he's called us. He's got a purpose for our life. Our life has more meaning than just living for ourselves or even our family. It's bigger than that. It's to be an ambassador. It's to tell the world. It's to impact them.